this week on the Back Table Podcast. Seriously think about where the future of healthcare is going, where what we were doing 10 years ago fits in with what this whole direct-to-consumer space is going. A lot of us have a tendency to just roll our eyes and say, oh, what a waste of money, what a waste of time, whatever, which you know, is probably in some ways true. But we need to start asking the right questions. Why? Why are people going those routes? Why are they going to the direct-to-consumer platforms? I think a lot of it, like I alluded to, is insurance-related, cost-related, but I think a lot of it is can be just failure of the way that we're delivering care to our patients. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. Revivirex, providing urology-specific sterile and non-sterile combining services to the specialties of urology and fertility since 2016. They currently work with over 500 urologists in 36 states, servicing over 200,000 patients live. They pride themselves on service, quality, and innovation. Products like their ICI injections are lyophilized to provide temperature stability to allow for shipping, easy of travel, and fewer incidences of priapism compared to pre-mixed formulations. Products RevivaRx produces include HCG, FSH, Trimix, Trimix Gel, libido enhancement for men and women, hormone replacement, and over 80 unique urology-specific compounds. All pharmaceuticals produced in our facility follow federal guidelines for sourcing, compounding, and dispensing. Find them online at revivarx.com. That's R-E-V-I-V-E-R-X.com or call 888-689-2271. Orders may be faxed to 888-689-1620 or sent electronically to RevivaRx Houston. Now, back to the show. This is Jose Ochesilva, your host this week. We are happy to have as guest Dr. Peter Baich. Dr. Baich, is, this is Urology Residency at Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago, then did a fellowship in Andrology and Male Genital Reconstruction Surgery at Rush University Medical Center, also in Chicago. He is an associate editor of urology in the Gold Journal and an editor for Journals of Sexual Medicine. Currently, he's at the Center of Men's Health at the Gleeman Urological and Kidney Institute in Cleveland. He's assistant professor of urology at the Cleveland Clinic Learner of College Medicine of Case Western Reserve University. Dr. Baich, it is a pleasure to have you as a guest today. Welcome to Back Table, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. So today we're going to try to cover various topics. It is going to be a, a dense podcast. We'll see how it goes. If we have to divide it, we'll deal with that later. So let's talk about what do you do in Cleveland Clinic? I mean, uh, are you doing mostly administrative research, clinical? What are you doing? So the primary focus of my practice is clinical medicine. I see men's health primarily. So erectile dysfunction, Peyronie's disease, and BPH probably make up about 75% of my practice at least. My specific focus is complex Peyronie's surgery and complex penile prosthesis. The rest of my time I spend doing research. We, you know, I work with a, a lab here that does microbiome research. And I'm also, I call myself a project manager for all the 
interesting and innovative uh, men's health projects and things that come up. So definitely passionate about men's health and where we're going, not only in that area, but also in healthcare in the future, specifically in the digital space. And happy to be here today talking to you guys and looking forward to our chat. Perfect. Thank you for being here. So, so definitely, I mean, you mentioned that digital health space and in the past couple of years, there have been a change or different access, how patients access mental erectile dysfunction. We have multiple companies now that they promote the HIMSS, Roman. Can you talk about, about that and what does it mean? Is, is it going to continue changing? Are we going to continue seeing just not seeing patients in the office rather than telehealth or, or something different like that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of different areas where we have seen a failure of our current health system to meet the needs of our patients, or at least the desires of our patients. And I think that direct-to-consumer digital health is just one area where there was a void that became filled by something that was outside of traditional healthcare. And I think other things are, you know, like the men's health centers and, uh, you know, popping up in every city, and that's been going on for a long time. But I think specifically the digital health space, it's appealing to a lot of guys because there is more anonymity. They don't have to necessarily worry about running into their neighbor in a waiting room somewhere. So along with that, you know, privacy and convenience, probably even more importantly for people that are not necessarily plugged into the health system, it's not the easiest thing to navigate. That's led to just major growth for a lot of companies in this space. And yeah, like you mentioned, like convenience and also time. Sometimes the, the patient is waiting two months, three months to see you, and you're going to start maybe Viagra, Cialis, whatever. These places, I mean, you're going to ask the same questions, maybe. It's, it's just to make sure that you don't run into any problems, any, any contraindications. That's probably how they work. But is it, I mean, is it safe? It's a great question. There are many folks who would argue that PD-5 inhibitors could be something that would be offered over the counter. Obviously, we urologists and physicians know that there are, for certain patients, very serious risks of taking these drugs, specifically you know, when people are on nitrates. So it's not that the prescribing of these medications outside of traditional healthcare is dangerous, in my opinion. I think it's more dangerous what could potentially be missed by seeking an easy solution through a direct-to-consumer platform that may not be thinking about your overall health, identifying red flags with respect to cardiovascular disease, sleep apnea, all, all these things that we have been primed to pick up on in a conversation with a patient, whether it's in person or virtually. I think that the direct-to-consumer platforms in the state that they are for the most part have not been as attentive to the opportunity we have as providers addressing some of these sexual and even urinary issues, there's a huge potential to identify major medical issues that they may not even know that they have, because we know that guys, you know, are not great about preventative care. They don't necessarily always get their screenings that they're supposed to get. I think there are certain benefits to that easy access, but I do think there are significant drawbacks to the way that it, for the most part, it's currently being administered that I think are opportunities for improvement in the future. In terms of those improvements, I mean, right now, where do you go about educating the patient that there might be 
things that they're missing when they go into these websites or, or phone calls. So, so how, how do you cross that and make those patients understand that these medications, I mean, just like you mentioned that they might be over the counter, but they're, they're, they're really not for a reason. Most of the time, also the patients, they just think that we as physicians, we're here just to get the money. So, so how do you change that paradigm and make the patient believe in us again? Yeah. I mean, great, great question. So ED is a condition, for example, that affects 30 million men at least. And, the, you know, I think that's probably an underestimate. I think the first thing for this and other conditions is educating the population about the fact that these urologic symptoms that they experience may be the first sign of a more serious issue that relates to their heart, that relates to potentially diabetes, many other issues, and not just educating those men that may experience that, but also their partners, which are, who are oftentimes the ones encouraging them to go to the doctor. I find amongst my patients that really many people have no idea about that relationship. I mean, there's, there's strong evidence that suggests that ED can precede a heart attack by about five years. It's not exactly common sense to most people that if I can't get a good erection, that I need to worry about a heart attack or that I need to change my behavior. And unfortunately, there is a not a huge number of urologists, particularly people that primarily deal in sexual medicine that are very familiar with these relationships to spread that awareness. So I think we need to continue doing the best job that we can of spreading this information to our patients, friends, family, et cetera, and continue to look for innovative solutions to deliver that type of not just treatment for ED, but also the necessary assessment to identify what might be the cause to men. And, and give them an alternative that meets them where they are without forcing them to rely on a suboptimal care pathway, so to speak. No, definitely. And I can see it on the patient's face when they're, they're coming for, for ED. And I tell them, hey, you, are, are you having chest pain? Or, or, or you, not, not, not just chest pain, but fatigue. If you go a flight of stairs, they know or they hadn't go to the to the office, but probably the, the, the wife is, like you mentioned, the partner is the one bringing that patient to the office because they didn't want to hear, hear that there might be something else going on. And also as, the, as part of the convenience of these websites that they're not going to ask those difficult questions that the patient doesn't want to talk about and, and know that there might be a ticking time bomb when you ask them that their parents, that their father might have a heart attack at a young age. We as a urologist is also is part of the struggle because they tell they go outside the office and say, "Well, the urologist didn't want to prescribe anything. He told me to go and see a cardiologist." So, how can we be better in, in that sense? Yeah, I mean, I think that as urologists, we're in a very unique position with respect to a lot of the things you said. I do think it's also a unique position in that men can be very motivated by sex and by not going to the bathroom every fifteen minutes. So sometimes we can leverage these concerns that they have to really change their behavior and their lifestyle choices that may be contributing. You know, I think that a lot of men, you're right, they don't want to talk about these things. And I've done a little bit of a deep dive into some of the platforms just to see what, what kind of questions they ask. And they do ask some, some important questions. But I think that the missed opportunity is really to deliver the same type of assessment that we offer in traditional healthcare. I think that we need to start as physicians and administrators putting our heads together to figure out 
innovative solutions that we can take advantage of things like asynchronous telehealth, which is a big basis for many of these platforms. For a subset of patients that go through that, then use virtual visits, face-to-face encounter. And then for a subset of those transition to in-person care, the direct-to-consumer space is all cash. And many people choose that because, I mean, you look at the prices of deductibles over the last 10 to 15 years. I mean, they've been going up and up and up. Wages have not been going up in a proportional way. So the cost of healthcare on each individual is going up. And many folks maybe don't have insurance or they have a high deductible plan. And for them, it's cheaper to go on there and spend a couple hundred bucks on a Viagra prescription. But the difference is that if that person that would have walked into your office with a blood pressure of 210 or whatever, they're probably not getting the care that they need because the way that the digital health platforms check your blood pressure is they ask you to key it in. And everybody knows that you could pretty much key in anything you want. It's interesting how, how that space is evolving now because you have Hims and Roman both started in 2017 with a couple hundred million dollars of seed money. And over the next four years or so grew into 1.5, $1.6 billion organizations. And most of that growth was pertaining to pharmaceuticals. You know, the whole e-pharmacy space is projected to grow to like over a hundred billion dollars over the next couple of years. So it's a, it's a massive market. And it's interesting now to see how some of the disruptors into that market, like Mark Cuban's new pharmacy are starting to change that landscape a little bit. You see now that you can get 90 tablets of full strength Viagra through his pharmacy for like 12 bucks. (laughs) And that's pretty much where I send most of my patients to for those kinds of prescriptions. Now, you see some of these companies trying to pivot to other areas, mental health and even primary care. I think there's an, there's an effort to try to do some integration, but I think we as you know, healthcare systems and hospitals just haven't really seemed to make much of an effort to get to the table and try to reach those patients that we're not otherwise getting to. Me personally, or, or in, I wasn't doing telehealth visits, for example. I wasn't until the pandemic that we started doing telehealth and now it's part of the office, even though, I mean, I'm employed by the hospital, even though I feel that sometimes they're pushing people in the office rather than virtuals. I mean, there's no way of me proving it, but that's the the, the sensation or or the feeling that I get because it it pays more to the system. It pays more to have a patient in the office rather than the virtual, at least in paper. I mean, maybe if you go that, break it down, I mean, you can see more patients virtually. I mean, who knows? But you got this, this forces pushing patients into your, into the door, like a conveyor belt. And sometimes the, the, the patient feels like that. And, and that's why they want to do something else. So that, definitely, the, I mean, like, like you mentioned, the direct to consumer, I mean, is, is here and is here to stay. And we miss, I think, just like most of the time what happens, we, we miss to be part of the players in ter- or, or, or be bigger in this field rather than just sitting around looking at it from a distance. Do you see a lot of patients that went to Roman or, or Hames and then they, they go see you? I see a fair number. I think that really it's, there's different populations, right, of men that have these conditions. I think that the direct-to-consumer platforms are particularly appealing to younger guys who are maybe either experiencing ED for the first time or they're even just looking for, maybe they don't need anything, but they're just looking to get closer to how they were when they were 18 years old or whatever. Most of those guys are probably not coming into the urologist's office at a major you know, academic center. But what I do see a lot of 
which is a, it's a similar, I think, concept in that it's a different type of marketing in healthcare. What I do see the most commonly is guys that go to the direct-to-consumer men's health clinics that advertise on TV and radio. And when I was in Chicago, there were a bunch of them there. Now I'm in Cleveland, there's, they're everywhere. A lot of guys go to those places before coming in and you know, almost universally express frustration with their experience and their outcomes relative to what they were promised. So that's, a, I think, a huge other area also in marketed in a direct-to-consumer fashion that I think, I'm not sure what the solution is, but I think a lot of men have regret relating to pursuing that type of men's health care. Yeah, most of the time they mentioned that the, the first visit, they, they saw a great erection. And then after $5,000, they didn't see anything else. <laughs> yeah, we call that placebo <laughs> placebo effect probably sometimes. Yeah, and, and I see patients that they get Peronis just after one shot in these clinics. I mean, it might have happened anyways, but... Yeah. yeah, I think the big ones, I mean, at least the big ones here are like the... They're not, I mean, they're not even doing shockwave therapy. It's radio wave therapy, which is proven in multiple studies to really not do anything. Oftentimes falsely marketed as shockwave. That's, I think, the biggest... Thing that I've seen in our local market here. I mean, there's also the testosterone shops. There's the intercavernosal injection shops. Yeah, th those are here in Orlando. That those are the ones that I see the most. There are some places that are doing some sort of wave therapy. I'm not sure if shockwave or, or radio, but I don't. I'm not seeing that many of those. I was first receiving all this him propaganda, and I said, well, I mean, I, I wasn't looking for anything or anything like that. But then suddenly, I started seeing. Is there like a radio wave that you can do it at home or something like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Because th that happened like almost like two weeks ago. I started seeing those pop up in my Facebook account. Not sure. Yeah, I mean, I get I get a lot of a lot of questions in my practice about about this stuff, and you know, I think there are urologists out there who poo poo any kind of regenerative therapy like shockwave, PRP, etc., because they're is not sufficient evidence to really recommend it in the way that we recommend PD-5 inhibitors. My approach to this has really been to have an individualized conversation with every patient about what we do know and what we don't know about these treatments. I think that for the appropriately counseled patient, probably of all those options, shockwave therapy probably has the most evidence, although it's all short-term, small studies, and every single one uses a different device with different you know, settings. But that probably has the most suggestion that it probably does something. The biggest problem is we don't know the best way to use it and the best way to identify the optimal patients and how long the benefit might be. And because there's no level one evidence to support it, insurance doesn't cover it. So it ends up being a sizable out-of-pocket cost for the patient. You know, in my opinion, if, if you lay it all out for them, they're adults, they can make an educated decision. And if they've You know, a lot of these guys, maybe they have a great initial response to a PD-5 inhibitor, but they just lose it too quickly and they don't have premature ejaculation. And they're just looking for something to boost them up a little bit, you know, and they don't have any poorly controlled comorbidities or no history of radiation or anything like that. Those are the guys I think probably would have some benefit. I just don't know to what degree and for how long. So I offer it to those guys. And, but I think places that are telling every single person that walks in the door that they will be fixed That should be a major red flag, whatever it is that they're offering. Are you guys doing shockwave in, in Cleveland? Yeah, we've been doing shockwave for a number of years and that practice has kind of evolved. I think that we're, we're, I spend a lot more time talking people out of it than into it. And many of the guys, many of the guys that come in for a shockwave evaluation are like, 
post-prostatectomy or radiation and already failed injections. And that's not even a conversation. But I think for guys that have mild ED, who let's say a young guy who is extremely responsive to a PD-5 inhibitor, but does not like the side effects. I mean, that's like, I think an optimal candidate unless there's some other reversible cause. So my rationale for offering that is that if, if I don't, they're going to go across the street to the place that's not going to do the H&P that is going to identify those serious issues, that's not going to counsel them on the comprehensive list of available treatment options. And I have very realistic discussions with these patients about the limitations of the evidence. A lot of guys, they don't mind paying for shockwave and seeing if it works before they commit to a penile implant, for example. I by no means encourage them to go that way, but they're adults. They can make their own decision. I think it's our job as physicians, as urologists, to use all that we've learned in our training to give people the necessary information to make their own decisions, right? And I think that what we see in the direct-to-consumer space is they're not being given all of the information about how these symptoms may relate to their overall, particularly cardiovascular health, and they're not given the opportunity to have earlier screening and you know, correction of those issues before it evolves into something more serious down the road. And uh, just out of curiosity, I mean, most of the patients going to Chugwave, are they referred by a general urologist versus a mental health spe specialist? Um, that usually the trend? I think it. I don't want to put you in the spot or anything like that, but. No, it's okay. It's okay. No, I, I mean, by no means are there like a massive number of these guys. I don't want to give the impression that we're doing a ton of this. So it's not like a clinic that you have. No, it's just maybe like one time per clinic. It's not like a lot of these other places where it's, you know, 50 patients a day or whatever. As far as where those patients come from, I mean, it's, it's really a, a wide variety. Some people just heard that their friend had it with us and they're like, oh man, you know, I went to that place for the initial conversation. They told me it was going to be like $8,000 and it just felt creepy, you know, and I wanted to come and learn about it from another place. And then, you know, when we talk about it, I always explain to them the difference between radial wave, shock wave, the difference in evidence supporting the two, which for basically for radial wave, there is no evidence supporting it. And, you know, it ends up being a fraction of the cost for a superior treatment, recognizing that there are limitations to what we know about it. But anyhow, so some people just heard about it. They come in, some people get referred by another urologist. Some people get referred by their primary care. I mean, I'm in a very unique and huge system where we have subspecialists for everything and a huge primary care network. So most of our referrals are internal in the system, but we do get a fair number of people coming from the outside seeking this specifically. Like I said, some of them are definitely not a candidate for it. And how do you compete? I mean, you can do your year in Cleveland Clinic. Uh, how do you compete in terms of mar marketing? You have the guys driving on the car, he's listening to the sports radio, and he's just hearing about Chuck Way or, or, or any type of weight therapy. He's hearing about hymns and all that, that, that is easy, that is safe. That, and how do you go against that marketing? I mean, you, you don't hear Dr. Bayich on, on, the, on the radio every day. It's, it's difficult, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the goal is not to compete, right? The goal is to innovate and figure out how to do things in a better way that reaches more people and takes better care of them. And I think that's really where most of the work is to do. Obviously, we're all busy. You know, there's not that many urologists. So this is more of a system issue that we need to collaborate as health systems and, and figure out how to reach these folks. I'm definitely not going to be the one putting my head on a billboard saying, come do shockwave with me. But I think the more that we can educate 
get on various platforms talking about this kind of stuff, bringing down those boundaries that prevent men from discussing it with their partners, their friends, their cousins, their coworkers. The more we increase the conversation and then people start telling each other, oh, you know, actually, yeah, I was waking up 10 times a night to urinate and turns out I didn't know I had sleep apnea and I had terrible blood pressure and all this stuff. And now my life has changed as a result of that. I mean, those kinds of stories are powerful. People share that information. So I think that the goal, like I said, the goal is not to compete. It's to innovate and figure out how to deliver care to more people. You mentioned in Octuria, I mean, I, I'm sure you get this a lot, but most of the patients, ah, I, I'm, go I'm good during the day, but I, I just wake up at night and, you know, a big guy snores in front of you and you, you try to convince him. Everybody tells him that he has a large prostate. You start there 10 minutes, 15 minutes, start to convince him it's not their prostate. Most likely, I mean, we're going to check, but most likely it's not your prostate. If you're good during the day, I mean, the prostate doesn't distinguish whether it's day or night. Also, I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about the primary care, but they, they just keep saying that's also, I mean, it, it needs the, 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 the education needs to start at an early level. And I would say most of it's just marketing from the pharmaceuticals. You, you see the commercials. Do you wake up at night? I mean, the, the patient might be perfect, but if he wakes up at night, he's going to show you up to your office. I have a problem with the prostate. So, I mean, and it, it, it takes time from our office to really help the guys that, that need help. And for every one of you, we need a hundred, right? Because there are just so many guys out there, they have no idea. The other area I see besides nocturia, I mean, these guys come in and they're like, I have fatigue. I wake up so tired. I have no energy. I got my testosterone checked and it's low. And there, you know, there was a nice paper that came up, uh, I think a year and a half ago from a couple of my partners that showed that for men that are on testosterone and start having, let's say like a high hematocrit, complication of testosterone. If you do sleep studies on those guys, they, a high percentage of them have undiagnosed sleep apnea. I do sleep apnea screening on all of my testosterone patients. Anybody who's going to get testosterone, I ask them questions about whether or not they have sleep apnea. If they sound like they have it, they're getting a sleep study before I prescribe it. Now, some of those guys probably say, screw this guy. I'm just going to go to the shop across the street and get testosterone. And I can't, you know, I can't fix that overnight, but I think through advocacy through, you know, working on a local level. My hope is that over time, urologists and those around us can try to help prevent those patients who are being harmed by those clinics. I mean, I see these just crazy regimens that guys come in on and they're paying thousands of dollars. It's like their testosterone is like 3000. <laughs> you know, it's just like, like what is even going on? And, and there's just so many games that they play. You, you give them too much testosterone and drive the estrogen level up. And then you say, oh, testicles are shrinking. You got to do the HCG, you know? And if you don't do that all, you're not going to be a man enough. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. I don't know the solution, but hopefully somebody will figure it out. And do you think the AUA should have a, a bigger role in terms of education? Because I, I know they do a lot of education. I receive some in the office and I, I put it in the, in the waiting area. But I don't see any more. Definitely, it's difficult to uh, compare to the companies that are specifically targeting these patients. But I think the UAE might, might start trying to get into rhythm. And it's tough because the hardest thing is to figure out what types of efforts are going to be the most impactful, right? And there's only so many urologists. There's only so many of us who participate in advocacy. Thankfully to my former chair, Chris Gonzalez, I got involved with the AUA's Advocacy Summit as a resident. I've been going every year since. 
um, a member of the AUA State Advocacy Committee. There are so many priority items that you know we work towards, and it's impossible to address them all. But I do expect in the future that there will be an increasing attention towards protecting our patients from these types of places because they're everywhere. And it's not new. I mean, these places have been around a long time. But the other thing is that relative to other groups of physicians and other advocacy groups, I mean, we're a relatively small group. There's just not a lot of urologists. I mean, it's a long training, five to six years. It's extremely competitive. The number of residency spots has been pretty tightly regulated over many years. So there's only so much funding we can raise for advocacy efforts. And, you know, with, with all the different things going on in the world, it's, it's hard focusing on a topic like this. And you mentioned about the workforce shortage. Uh, I mean, is it going to be a time where you go into residency, maybe do a one year of general urology and then go straight into a, a specific field, men's health? And this is a very interesting question that you know, we've spent a lot of time thinking about and discussing, and I'm not sure what the best solution is. There are different models that have been explored all around the world, right? So not every person trained in urology around the world is a surgeon, for example. Do you need to know how to do a, a radical nephrectomy with level four cable thrombus to be able to prescribe Viagra and Flomax? Like probably not, right? Obviously, it's, it's very important to have a comprehensive education, but the question is, is there a role for something in between, let's say, primary care and urology that maybe doesn't do surgery? And, and there's variations of this all around the country. I mean, for example, when I was in Chicago, the two highest volume vasectomy providers in the entire city were family medicine providers. Ugh. I'm pretty sure. Okay. So we could argue all day and night about the pluses and minuses of that and whether it's right. And I don't disagree with any specific opinion, but I, I do see that there is a huge need in this space that our patients wait a really long time, that there is a massive shortage, particularly in the more rural areas. I mean, I still get like five emails a day to come work in this small town. Well, you know, this is what we'll pay you. This is what kind of robot we have, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, places are really struggling. And I think a lot of hospitals lose accreditation for not having providers. So there are two training programs in the U.S. for what can be, I guess, called medical urology, which is a fellowship training program for graduates of either internal medicine or family medicine to learn primarily office-based and even hospital-based urology. There's one on the West Coast in Utah. There's one on the East Coast. And I think only time will tell what the role of these providers are. I mean, we've, we've been doing this in urology now for a while with APPs, right? You bring them on. They oftentimes have no experience whatsoever. You train them for a couple of months in urology, and then you kind of cut them loose and you monitor, make sure they're not doing anything bad. And places like Mayo Clinic or have let APPs do procedures for a long time. And they just, for example, at SMSNA, they just had a poster saying that the outcomes for certain things are no different. So, I mean, this is happening. And I think it's only a matter of time till we have more and more physicians who are seeking specialized training to not, you know, they're going to do this, whether we like it or not, but we, we have an opportunity to at least train them to do select things in a capable and good fashion where they're not going to harm people. So we're actually, you know, looking at potentially starting a program like this. We've had providers like that in our department since the 90s. Milton Lakin, for example, was a medical erectile dysfunction specialist. Jeanette Potts 
had a lot of different aspects of her practice, pelvic pain, she did vasectomies, prostate biopsies, et cetera. Different systems have different needs. And I think that this is just one way that those types of needs might be addressed in the future. And how about those med the medical urology fellowship? Do they do procedures in the office as well? They do. I mean, they can do a resume, a urolift in the office? I don't know the specifics about where the lines are drawn, but I know that some of the procedures, which I don't think are unreasonable for a physician to learn how to do, are, you know, vasectomy, prostate biopsy, cystoscopy. Obviously, nobody, you know, is going to be able to detect all the things that you would detect having done so many. But, you know, the same could probably be said about some urologists coming out of training in their first couple months of practice that maybe didn't have a lot of exposure to a certain thing. So it's a tough balance, right? You want to protect your field and the scope of practice of what urologists do. But at the end of the day, I mean, we have people really suffering. The population's not getting any smaller. The number of urologists is not really getting bigger. Hardly. It's actually shrinking. Yeah. So we, I mean, we have to be willing to at least consider some of these innovative solutions and maybe they're not for every city or every health system or every practice, but I think some, some really need it. For example, in Puerto Rico right now, uh, there's a, a shortage of, of a real shortage of physicians and they're proposing, the, it is a, a government driven initiative. They're proposing to, instead of everybody there, it has to be ACMG, everything accredited and everything just like in the States, but they're suggesting doing stuff on their own or, or training on their own without being accredited and then giving full credentials. Of course, the people that do have the training and everything are opposing that because we waited, we went to med school, we, we, we got good grades. So it's, it's, it's difficult. Uh, even if there's a need, sometimes it's difficult seeing it happen next to you. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you're never going to get buy-in from everybody. But at the same time, those people sometimes that are the most resistant or maybe aren't the ones or don't know anybody in their immediate circle who is suffering as a result of the limited workforce. So it's hard. Um, but I think, I mean, I think there is a role in certain areas for us to think innovatively and think about creative solutions to these problems. I, I heard a talk from a prominent urologist at this meeting last weekend that said, you know, if the patient wants to come to me for a vasectomy four months till my next available. If they don't want to wait that long, my PA, who I trained, can do it next Tuesday. So there are going to be some patients that want to wait. There's going to be some patients that don't. Yeah. And, and I mean, even in the major cities, we, we're having I mean, shortage. Uh, we're, we're super busy. The patients are waiting two or three months to see us. I can't imagine what's going on in, in rural areas that there's no urologist or maybe one urology for the entire 50,000 patients in that area. It's, it's scary at some point. I mean, you don't want to retire in a place that there's no, no medical, I mean, no specialists around. So you, everybody's going to continue driven to, to major cities. And I mean, you see these people, they drove six hours to get to you. I mean, many of them don't have much as far as resources. It's very costly. A lot of times you have to get a hotel or they're the people that don't show up until it's really, really advanced, whatever it is, whether it's a renal masts or something. Oh yeah. I started having blood in my urine two years ago and... It was, yeah, I couldn't leave the farm to go to the big city for a couple of days to get this evaluated. So I think people are really being harmed and, and we need to be willing to consider some of these options and set it up in the right way where we can all collaborate and cohabitate in a productive fashion to take care of our patients. In terms of the medical urology fellowship versus APPs, I mean, because uh, uh, probably an APP is faster, it will fill gaps sooner. 
But do you think there's a reason why going to a subspecial or a fellowship rather than just continue training APPs? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really good point. I think that a lot of practices, including ours, have implemented APPs in a way that's been just wonderful. I mean, I work with several APPs and I don't know what I would do without them. I guess every practice that has physicians and APPs, there are some patients who, for whatever reason, they want to come and see the physician. Or maybe, you know, it's a very complex problem that the APP refers to the physician. I think that there is always a role for a, I guess, different levels of whether, I don't know if whether it's experience or years of education or whatever it is, particularly for the more complex problems and, and for specific patients that prefer that. Now, do those people that need more specialized care need to see a surgeon if it's a non-surgical issue? For example, let's say pelvic pain, right? Probably not. And it's not necessarily, I don't think, the best investment of our time and training and everything to make somebody spend three extra years doing complex surgery if that's really not what they want to do for their career. Similarly, how many people get scared away from a career in urology because they don't prioritize doing major surgery or they don't want to necessarily do a six-year residency? So I think that what we've seen in other areas of the world, you know, there are some countries where out of a whole medical school class, only one whoever's the best at surgery ends up being the surgeon and the rest are non-surgeons. So I think we need to continue to reevaluate things and, and maybe work uh, sometimes smarter and not harder, because I think that what we would find is that there are motivated people that can really do an excellent job in collaboration with us so that we can focus more on the things that we really like to do. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and just, you mentioned other countries. I mean, most other countries, you go straight from high school or the equivalent of high school into med school. You, you don't go to a college. Maybe we'll have to change at some point. Maybe it's, it's, it's not lucrative for, for some people. So who knows? So Peter, I mean, we cover a, a, a bunch of topics. Anything else you want to add? I guess I just, I want to emphasize, you know, how important I think it is that we seriously think about where the future of healthcare is going, where what we were doing 10 years ago fits in with what this whole direct-to-consumer space is going. I think that we really, a lot of us have a tendency to just roll our eyes and say, oh, what a waste of money, what a waste of time, whatever, which, you know, is probably in some ways true. But we need to start asking the right questions. Why? Why are people going those routes? Why are they going to the direct-to-consumer platforms? I think a lot of it, like I alluded to, is insurance-related, cost-related. But I think a lot of it is can be just failure of the way that we're delivering care to our patients. I don't necessarily have the answer to this, but I think until we start getting around the table and talking about it, trying to better understand it, researching it, looking at real outcomes of how these patients do compared to other things. We're really not going to know. And I think those places are they're just going to keep growing and they're just going to keep adapting and they're going to figure out how to bridge themselves to our type of healthcare. Uh, alternatively, we can work to figure out how to give our patients what they're offering and take better care of them. Exactly. And, and you, you can see it. Sometimes the patient comes into your office and they're thinking, they're waiting for that moment that you're going to say that you're going to do a surgery. And they, they fear coming to you because they think, ah, this guy is going to 
is trigger happy. He's going to do it. And, and they, I mean, I can see it on their face. And, and those patients, I tried to go slower because they, they have loose faith on, on us. And they go to the marketing and then when they lose the faith on the marketing, but, the, but they already took that step to that other place. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, I think that the way people look at physicians in 2022 is very different than they did in, you know, 1960 or 1980 or for a lot of different reasons. And I think we need to be aware of that and we need to show them why having a background and a holistic view on the human body is so important and not just being so problem focused and solution oriented for that one specific problem. I think we need to just continue educating people, continue taking care of them. Word of mouth is very important. Each individual practice can't exactly afford to get on TV with commercials and all this stuff. So we really need to work together. And like I said, smarter, not harder and start to figure out some solutions. I like what you said about holistic. Unfortunately, not, I mean, I'm not talking about urology. Usually the patients that I see, they're not talking, I mean, they, they have something to say about other physicians in general and just taking time to listen to them. Even if it's the back pain or, or whatever else, they just want somebody to listen and for you to know the whole story. Even if at the end of the day, it really didn't matter for what you were doing, but they, they, they like that sense that you care about what's going in the entire uh, person. In addition to that, the, we have to also keep in mind the, the mental health component and how these issues and complaints, you know, that guys come to a urologist's office with can really be devastating. We need to be willing to acknowledge those impacts and work with mental health providers and refer patients because that aspect is so important. And I think particularly men shy away oftentimes from bringing up that conversation. I, I can't tell you how many guys have kind of almost broken down. They need the opportunity to talk about what's going on, to be heard, to share how it's affecting their life. So Peter, thank you for being back table. For your listeners, Dr. Bajic, talk about he likes doing the complex spinal implants, complex peroni. So just shoot an email to him and he will gladly see those patients, right? Exactly. Thanks so much uh, for having me on. And you know, this is really great. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Vidavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.